Americans pursue a degree or other credential after high school for many reasons, but they cite one above all others to improve their job or career prospects. That's among the reasons why a recent report from the Post-Secondary Value Commission, a new initiative from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, recommends judging the value of academic programs and institutions centrally by their success at ensuring that graduates attain sufficient income, economic mobility, and ultimately wealth. Welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, and in this week's episode, two thoughtful observers of the landscape around higher education affordability and quality offer contrasting takes on the Gates Report's proposal for assessing value, with a particular focus on whether it overemphasizes economic success as a factor. Beth Akers, a higher education researcher and free market economist at the American Enterprise Institute, says it's logical to focus on economic measures given how post-secondary education is increasingly funded in the United States. The financial onus is largely on individuals. And so if people are saying the reason I'm going to college is for career and financial advancement, um, you know, I think there's a responsibility that we take seriously whether or not institutions who are operating in the public domain, um, are, you know, are actually yielding that. Claude Presnell Jr. leads an association of private nonprofit colleges in Tennessee, and he worries about over-dependence on income and other career outcomes in judging institutions' success, given the college's focus on also preparing graduates to be productive members of our society. Presnell also notes that like many such studies, the Value Commission's report largely ignores independent nonprofit colleges and universities, which make up nearly 40% of American colleges and educate about one in five U.S. undergraduates. We'll hear from Beth and Claude in a minute, but before we do, here's a word from the Gates Foundation, which is sponsoring this episode of The Key. Have you wondered what college is worth? It's a question many Americans are asking and they deserve answers. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is proud to support the work of the Post-Secondary Value Commission, which is out with new answers to that question. Learn more at postsecondaryvalue.org. Today, we welcome to the key Beth Akers, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, Making College Pay, An Economist Explains How to Make a Smart Bet on Higher Education and Claude Presnell Jr., president of the Tennessee Independent Colleges and Universities Association, and a longtime participant in federal and state discussions about higher education affordability and financial aid. Uh, Beth and Claude, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, Doug. The Post-Secondary Value Commission's report confronts a lot of knotty issues over higher education affordability, accessibility, equity, and value, and proposes a way to define and ultimately measure the relative value of programs and institutions. Uh, from your perspectives, what did it get right, and in what ways was it off base? Beth, maybe start with you. Sure. You know, I've been working in this space for about 10 years, and I think my persona is sort of to, to sit at the table and shout about economic returns. So, you know, I was kind of thrilled to see the Gates Foundation, who's such a huge player in the space, you know, taking a keen interest in doing just that. So that part of the, the report was really satisfying to me, and I think it kind of marks a new 
era in how we are thinking about what needs to be accomplished in higher education. You know, we went from, um, of course, access, enrollment to completion, and now value. So I'm thrilled with that part. Um, the, the, the tougher part for me with this report was that I think it's, it, it attempts to tackle so much, which is great. But in terms of wrapping the, the issue of equity into value, you know, I, I, I think it's an admirable attempt and appropriate for the moment, of course. I just question whether it really succeeded in giving us a new frame for thinking about that. Okay, Claude? Yeah, I was uh, really pleased to see that the report took a slightly different approach taking a look at uh, social justice and equity issues, which from you know my perspective, we rely too much on, on the wage piece uh, as being a determinant of, of success and being a determinant of value. I think that they finally hit in on what are some of those skills that are really difficult to measure. But at the same time, although they articulated those well, like student well-being, uh, you know, civic engagement, pluralism, and all of those very abstract terms. They still, though, unfortunately, went back to, all right, how much money do you make? And, and does that pay off? And it's not that the wage piece is not important, but I think that, you know, the previous discussions have always been centered around, this is the epitome of what we consider to be successful or not. One, what's your wage and your earnings look like? And what do they look like over time? And Fortunately, the discussion not only has moved towards some of those softer skills, but it is taking a look at wages over a lifetime versus recent graduate, which I thought was a, a really poor you know, measure to, to put out there as a measure of success. So you both framed that up very well, the, the, the differences in how you come at this. So Beth, there's a logic to focusing on uh, wages and, and career outcomes broadly, because we know that the vast majority of, of students seek post-secondary education for career advancement. And so mm -hmm. that, there's a logic there. We also know that it has historically been uh, that we, we value what we measure, what we can measure. And so how, what's your argument for centering wages and, and career outcomes in a definition of value and how exclusively should that be the measure I mean, mm -hmm. or, or how proportionally should should that be the measure and why? Yeah, great. So, you know, the, the way that the United States has organized their economy kind of rests on this idea that you can quote unquote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And higher education historically has been the primary mechanism for social mobility in our economy. So to me, that's a absolutely critical role of higher education. I mean, and I don't, by saying that, don't want to minimize the other important roles of our higher education system, but that one seems like the, the baseline um, you cannot fail on this dimension. And in large part, it's because we have an individually funded model. So we have, you know, federal state support, of course, for public institutions and for individuals to shop with subsidies for their higher education. But the financial onus is largely on individuals. And so if people are saying the reason I'm going to college is for career and financial advancement, um, you know, I think there's a responsibility that we take seriously whether or not institutions who are operating in the public domain, are, you know, are actually yielding that. 
many of the other things are difficult to measure and Claude, mm -hmm. I want to come back to you for a, in a minute mm -hmm. on that. Let's say that we, if we had good measurements for some of those other things, would it be logical to include them in a menu of, of measures that we use? Or do you think that the economic issue is so important that it would, should be a hundred percent of the quote measurement, no matter what? I mean, a lot of times we try to think about how can we boil down quality or value into some single index or something. And by doing that, you're necessarily making a value statement. I mean, I don't mean value in the same way it's being used in the report, but a preferences statement, you know? So as an economist, I'm saying, I, I think wages are really important. So if I were creating an index, I would put a lot of weight on wages. Um, and somebody else might say, well, I think, you know, civic engagement is, is really important. So they put a lot of weight on that. So any index is necessarily going to suffer from being a reflection of the preferences of its author. And so, you know, given that I, you know, I'm more of a choice type person, a market type person, you know, what I like is when we give people information across all dimensions, rather than boiling them down to a single index, rather than me telling you what quality means, I give you a different measures and, you know, we can decide what those measures are. And I think that's part of what this report is trying to do, saying, does an institution, does an institution succeed on this dimension or, or that dimension? And I think it's fine to define value on several different dimensions and allow consumers or even policymakers to decide how to respond to you know those those values but i don't love anything that tries to boil it down for us claude jump back into the conversation about sort of how you view this multiplicity of of potential measures and and as yeah factors. well first of all i think that you know uh that's final point is a critical one in that, you know, we got to be really careful about when we employ the kind of reductionism to boil it all down into one particular measure. When we know the higher education experience is as complex as the human experience, right? And if you take a look at our nation over time, uh, the earnings from a college education was secondary to shaping society, to having a society that was civil, that was principally uh, pluralistic, that understood differences that could engage in, in serious thought about American policy, local policy for the betterment of the human experience, right? So, and now we've shifted toward, and it's, it's kind of like over time, and it, it happened almost with the industrial age is, all right, now how much money can you make? And then post-World War II, it, it was really focusing on wages and so forth. And so, that's where I got a little bit encouraged with this report that they started to give a nod to some of these other factors. But if you take a look at our nation today, we have wage issues, but most of our issues are relational and the ability to, to work with one another and respect one another. And those, although those may be found somewhat in the wage data, it's really, it, you're not gonna dig in there and you're not gonna find it that way. Now, where I think the, first of all, I think wages are an important indicator. I think that because it is a part of the higher education experience, but there is a difference between training for a job and educating for, for life, and we need both. So I wanna be careful to say, this is not a zero sum game. We, we need to do, do both. And one thing about the report dealing with wages and equity, I thought was uh, incredibly important 
And that is where we need to look within categories of career to make sure that there is equitable pay among race and gender. There, there's gotta be. And I think, I think that is very evident in, in the data. But where they, again, fall short again is they try to reduce it down to where we're looking at wages nationally and it doesn't give an account for anything on regional differences. And, and so a good example is you could be teaching, uh, be a K-12 teacher in Davidson County in Nashville, and you're gonna make $20,000 a year more than the county south in Williamson County, even though the Williamson County scores are higher than Davidson County. So wait a minute, now what is successful and what's not successful there? There's, it's so difficult to unpack all of it that just to reduce it to a number is I think uh, someplace we got to be exceptionally careful with. Beth? Yeah, one place I think this does move the discussion forward in a really productive way is, you know, in, pre in previous discussions of incorporating equity into issues of quality and accountability, I've most often seen, you know, for example, discussions of risk sharing that people suggesting, okay, this institution serves a, a lot of disadvantaged people. So let's just cut them a break right? Let's let, let them have bad outcomes and not chastise them as much for, you know, for, for producing those bad outcomes consistently. What I like about the bit of nuance added here with, you know, equitable value is that it's, it's not saying that, right? It's saying we need to measure value um, more holistically across different groups. And, you know, as challenging is the, as that is, because it just kind of opens up Pandora's box more than it distills the issue down to something very tangible. Um, I think it's right. And, you know, so I think that is a, a productive development from the way they're discussing equity here. This episode is sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which works to ensure that every American can learn, grow, and get ahead, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or family income. Learn more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. I'm speaking today with Beth Akers of the American Enterprise Institute and Claude Presnell of the Tennessee Independent Colleges and Universities Association. Any attempt to measure or, or judge any of the things we've talked about, value, quality, et cetera, um, there's a question about whether it's to help students make decisions or potentially for use by policymakers to judge institutions. And Beth, you sort of focused, again, I think given your, your priorities and, and predilections toward better consumer information and, 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 and at, you're right that the more we're focused on that, a lot of information potentially is better as long as it's clearly understandable. Whereas if we're talking about how we might judge whether institutions are worthy of getting federal dollars, it's uh, you, you may need something clearer and sharper. So how do you think both think about that distinction and, and where this report sort of points? Claude, do you have thoughts first? When we talk about institutional accountability, which there should be institutional accountability for sure. I think that once again, when you take a look at strictly wage data, you, you, you're a half a step away from what the institutions can control, right? So you, you can't control the decision of a student 
a good example, you know, I, I was an undergraduate major in religious studies. My master's degree is in Greek, you know, and I'm doing educational policy. So you take these different pathways. So the institutions can't control what I do. So you, you're, you slip away just a little bit. Now, there is still a connection between that, that wage outcome. But I think that, I think the accountability piece, if you take a look at the report, the, their post-secondary value framework, where they uh, captured what was both the individual student benefit and the value for society, they came across a series of things that institutions should be held accountable for. Equitable access, equitable affordability, support, student supports, completion, and then, then, then they get the equitable earnings and equitable wealth, but equitable earnings, you're starting to get away. Equitable wealth, you're talking about over a lifetime. It's hard to say, well, I got this degree 25 years ago and it failed me because of here I am now and I'm not a, a millionaire or whatever, you know, wealth amassment looks like. And I think it's also critical just to understand that wealth is defined in monetary terms, but it's also defined in life enrichment. And so, you know, you, that goes back to my, my kind of difficult abstract uh, measurement piece. Yeah, um, well, little shameless plug here. I did just release a book called Making College Pay that guides consumers about how to make smart economical decisions about college. So that's on my mind a lot. <laughs> so as I was reading the report, it did occur to me that it seemed like there was a bit of convolution of the individual that sense of value and the social sense of value. And I think those are actually like completely separate issues. You know, the, the notion of equitable value, for example, you know, if I'm um, a young white man deciding where to go to college, the fact that the college I'm considering doesn't produce great outcomes for brown women, for example, that is probably not going to be the top concern, or maybe it is, right? But, but it's, you know, it's, it's a completely different issue than whether or not it's a of public concern or, um, you know, concerning given that public resources are being devoted to this institution, that that is the characteristic of the outcomes that they produce. So you know, I think they could have gone a bit further into delineating the difference between those two notions of value in the report. Um, I think what ultimately was produced, it, you know, in that it takes into account both those social factors, the issues of valuing equity as a society and the wage piece. I mean, to me, that is more of a reflection of the, the public or the social value, which is probably what they were aiming for. Um, but a, a nod to how individual value differs from that could be helpful. I think another area that I've got some concern about and have had concern over the years as this conversation has matured is that we need to be careful not to place a, high, a higher level of value based on what your earnings are versus someone who may choose another path. A good example. So does that mean that investment bankers who make untold millions of dollars are more successful than the, than the teacher who decides to teach in a rural community and is, you know, above poverty, but you know, but she has this passion for that. So, because we don't want to get to the point where we say we only value money makers, we will not value uh, those who choose, you know, pathways and career choices that are more 
uh, on the human connection piece, you know, and that they want to do, they want to do societal benefit. That's what they want to devote to. I'm going nonprofit or I'm going low wage earner versus I'm an investment banker. So all of a sudden we've got this institution is more successful because they have higher earners. Well, it especially right, it especially becomes problematic at the point where you you're saying this institution produces more of those high wage people and therefore we should judge them more favorably. You you wouldn't want institutions being nudged in that direction necessarily exactly. if your goal is to uh, produce, you know, people for all sorts of parts of society. Right. This kind of brings me back to the discussion um, that Policy World was having around when the college scorecard was proposed yet not yet released. And, and people were talking about boiling those, that data down to like letter grades or an index or some sort. And I remember at the time um, arguing that, you know, these sort of metrics are actually good at identifying bad or failing institutions and not great at differentiating between good, great, and excellent institutions. And so, you know, that reminds me of in the in the report, they identify um, the level of zero as for the institution that basically does no harm financially to a student. And maybe, you know, quality on the dimension of finances should be binary, <laughs> that it's um, have you done harm or done no harm um, financially to the individual. And I mean, that's a theoretical construct, of course, since we can't really measure, but. The report using the scorecard data found about 650 institutions that didn't get over that bar mm -hmm. where, the, where the graduates earned less than a high school, collectively earned less than a high school graduate in their right. region. And so that's, and obviously this is such a complex thing, but sort of, you know, having, figuring out kind of what measure of value we might use to, again, in or out of federal aid programs is very different from, from what might lead somebody to uh, choose one institution over another. So Claude, I, I'm just gonna make an assumption here given uh, what you do, but the, the role or relative lack of, of mention of independent colleges, uh, private nonprofit colleges in the report, pretty striking. And I guess I'm curious kind of, what you make of that, and you're probably used to it uh, in certain ways by now. But but um, how do you how do you how do you think about that, and and what do you how do you explain it, and what do you do about it, if anything? Yeah, well, I've been trying to figure out what to do about it for 25 years, and I don't know is that I've been, you know, overly successful in doing it. So, you know, I think that what what happens when again you take a look at a nationwide perspective. What a lot of funders do, what a lot of foundations do, what policy shops do is they say, well, where can we have the biggest bang for our buck? And let's go after, you know, this 75% population and you find yourself in the public sector. And that's just where you end up. What they reflect in the report, though, is that the performance data for the independent colleges far outpaces the outcome data for our public partners. So even though we may have about 25% of the student population, we're still conferring about 33 to 34% of the degrees, you know? And so we, we overproduce and, and we, we basically are that success measure in, in, in general sense, that success measure that they're really looking for. And that's, that's what's interesting. But even in the report, when they were taking a look at uh, students of color, yeah, we may have had a slightly smaller percentage of enrollment, 
but our outcomes were significantly higher than, than our public partners. Now, we need both, right? We need the public sector, we need the independent college sector as well. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not arguing one over the other, but I am arguing about a partnership. I am arguing for the fact that uh, our nation wouldn't be what it is without, without th those two systems together. And so I think that as a result of that, the independent colleges ought to be at the table to talk about strategies and, and the successful strategies where we've done quite well of graduating students of color in a timely basis at a higher, you know, at a higher rate. But yeah, it's been difficult over the years to, to get a place at the table because again, I think they're saying we can have the greatest impact with the greatest population, so they move over there. I would also add that I think that there is still this misconception of when you look at private non-for-profit institutions, your mind immediately wants to go to the elite institutions. And, and that is not characteristics of the independent colleges as a whole. In the state of Tennessee, I have 11 members of my 35 campuses. So 11 of 35 campuses that serve a higher percentage of Pell students than any community college in this state. And that shocks everybody that I tell that to, but we have the data to prove it. And then we graduate those students quicker with a four-year degree than our community college partners can get them out with a two-year degree. So, you know, it, it's, it's breaking that perception that we're only the Vanderbilts, the Harvards, the Yales, and what about the Lanes, the Lincoln Memorials, and the Bethels of the world? Uh, I'm speaking with Beth Akers, uh, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Claude Presnell Jr., president of the Tennessee Independent Colleges and Universities Association. Do you see this report influencing federal and and/or state policy? And if so, how? I, I was honestly a little surprised by how little policy was discussed. There were sort of, and certainly how little sort of the accountability role how this might influence sort of accountability. Um, maybe that was smart because that obviously always opens up lots of concern. And so maybe the focus was was to try to try to do the defining and leave the the politics and policy for later. But I'm just curious how how that struck you, uh, Beth? You know, the Gates Foundation sets the table for conversation and policy. And it's absolutely true in higher education. You know, I, I was like a little disappointed or unsatisfied with the lack of specific recommendations, like you said, on accountability in, in other areas. But on the other hand, the fact that Gates Foundation is now shouting value, 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 and equity, equitable-based value into the higher ed space means that we will, you know, us think tankers and DC people are going to sit around tables for the next five years and talk about value. And so, I mean, it's it's definitely marked a change in the core of conversation around policy. Um, I think it was coming um, anyway, but I think this really, really puts a kind of an exclamation point on that movement yeah and and just before turning to you claude the 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 movement to to value sort of arguably in my mind started around gainful employment but that was pretty narrowly focused on a set of programs and institutions and this would apply a, a prism of value more broadly and and again i think the question is does it where does it, one of the questions is where does it ultimately lead on policy? Claude, what, what, what is your thoughts on? First, I would say that 
their primary analysis of value is not a new argument. And so I think a lot of policymakers are going to see it as, yeah, we've heard this before when we're talking about wages and so forth. So I, in that space, I don't think there was anything new. I think the newness of this report is viewing these things through the lens of social justice and, and equity. And I think that is incredibly helpful for those of us in the academy. I'm afraid that within this divisive political environment that they're gonna have lost the ear of a lot of people for framing it in that way. And I hate to say that, you know, I, I will tell you it disappoints me, but I believe this report is likely to have minimal value in the policy world because it, it, it hit the third rail of political sensitivities in this current environment, which then takes me back to my other value proposition around this whole idea of, of principled pluralism and the need for us to be able to enter into uh, discussions in the public square as a value of higher education and educated individuals. We've moved, we've moved away from that. So my fear is, is that it's gonna have minimal impact and it may be dismissed because of the approach they took. And I hate to say that. What's gonna be critically important because I so appreciated that lens of the report, I thought it was good, uh, is that they've got to stay with it. If they abandon this in a year or two years, when everything kind of settles down, then they will have failed to accomplish what they were hoping to accomplish. I think that I think it was really good to press in on it. And as a result, I think again, it, it brought into uh, focus some of those abstract values which I thought was incredibly helpful. I thought it was unfortunate that it took this point in our history to for them to give nod to those abstract values, but I'm glad they have. And, and I think that the points they're making on uh, equity and on social justice and so forth are critically important points that need to be, need, need some stick-to-itiveness. They need to stay with that over time because as a society, we ebb and flow really quick and we need, we need someone to stay on point with that. Um, last thing, uh, given who our audience typically is, if you're an institutional leader, college or university, what's your takeaway here? What do you do in response to, especially if, if Beth's right, that this is gonna influence the direction of conversation for the next few years, what are, the, what are the questions that you're asking internally? How is it changing your thinking? Uh, Beth, first. Maybe. Um, with the caveat that I've never been a practitioner in, in higher ed, I think I would be asking my data people to make sure that I know what kind of value we are producing, figure out if we don't know the answer to that question, how do we find the answer to that question, and not just know it at an average level, but pay close attention to the subgroupings that are specifically called out in this report, um, and kind of be ready for that to be part of the discussion moving forward and, and get out ahead of it. I think that um, a good leader is going to is going to definitely clearly identify those things for which you have control over and those things that you don't, and really lean on on those things that you have control over. So the again going back to the framework of the report, you know, the equitable access. What are we doing there? Let's take a look at our populations. Are we doing what we need to do so that we have a campus that's reflective of the society that we live in? And and so there you have, uh, you know, the access, the affordability. 
and how are our support structures for underrepresented populations. So I really lean in on those things because what we do know is that we can control that thread toward equitable completion and, and then ultimately placement. But I would really also ramp up uh, the conversations with our external stakeholders and, and have deep conversations with those that are, are policy leaders, societal leaders, as well as employers, and really say, what are we not doing that we need to be doing? And uh, then engage our academic community to, to pivot, to make sure that we're doing what we need to. But then also taking that opportunity to express the value that you are bringing to the community and to the workplace based on your approach to the educational enterprise. So that's probably where, where I would really focus on, because if you can if you can differentiate between what you can control and what you can't control, yeah, you're likely to be more successful and be more successful quickly. That was Claude Presnell of the Tennessee Independent Colleges and Universities Association and Beth Akers of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks to both of them for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Key. Join us in future weeks for conversations about being a Black leader in higher education, whether colleges may shrink their physical footprints in the coming years, and the role of technology in enabling high-quality learning. Until next time, I'm Doug Letterman, and this is The Key. Stay well and stay safe.